Good day, podcast listeners. Once again, I am Dr. James Cole, and I'm excited and ready to talk all about today's topic of healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today, I'm going to talk all about the emergency room. I'm going to talk all about the good, the bad, and the ugly of it all, from soup to nuts. I'm going to talk all about the ER from the patient's perspective, from the perspective of someone who has worked for many decades in various emergency rooms and who has, for the most part, really enjoyed ER work, and from the perspective of a healthcare leader who has come to recognize the many changes in the healthcare system, specifically pertaining to emergency medicine, changes which, in some regions, illuminate some of the bad in American healthcare. Clearly, emergency rooms have changed over time. In fact, the reason why they are called emergency rooms is because, historically, there was one room in every hospital, staffed only by perhaps one nurse, where patients with emergencies, which simply could not be managed by their community doctors, came for treatment. The sole nurse on duty usually knew where all of the doctors in the community lived and had a Rolodex of phone numbers of everyone on staff. That nurse would call a number of physicians and eventually find somebody to come in and render care. Sometimes a hospital intern or a junior resident would moonlight, that is, cover the emergency room for a nominal fee, hoping to earn a few extra bucks during their postdoctoral training years. But they weren't specialists in any field. They weren't even general practitioners, as they had not even started their own practice. And they too often relied on calling in an established physician to care for whatever needed to be managed. That was how emergency medicine was practiced as recently as 60 years ago in some places. In the years that followed between the 1960s and the late 1970s, working in the ER was considered low-end medical work, something which most promising doctors would never pursue unless they really needed the money. But it soon became recognized that there was a real need for specially trained and dedicated emergency room physicians. And in 1979, the American Board of Medical Specialties first developed formalized ER residency training programs, and emergency medicine was for the first time declared a genuine medical specialty. Since its inception, approximately 40,000 physicians have become board certified in emergency medicine. However, that pales in comparison to, say, family medicine, which boasts nearly 150,000 members. Most people have watched television dramas, which chronicle the life of people who work in the ER and portray it all as exciting, quite glamorous, and certainly dramatic at times. I began my own healthcare career in the emergency room while still in high school, and in fact, I originally dreamed of becoming an ER doctor, and I intended to one day specialize in emergency medicine. I loved working in the ER, as it was in fact exciting, glamorous, and dramatic. But during my third year of medical school, I decided to become a surgeon, realizing that I could still spend plenty of time in the ER and continue to care for the most serious of the medical emergencies as a trauma and general surgeon. I've always respected the specialty of emergency medicine, and I give great credit to those who dedicate their lives to helping others in times of crisis. But as I said, so much has changed, and that is what I want to get into right now. To help me get into this topic, I'd like to illustrate three different scenarios involving different patients arriving to an emergency room hoping to seek care. Scenario 1. A 60-year-old man with high blood pressure, a smoking history, and who carries a bit too much weight was lifting heavy boxes at work when he felt a squeezing pressure in his chest. He then became nauseated and sweaty, and for the first time in his life, he felt as if he was going to die. His father died of a heart attack, and his brother had a heart attack just a few years prior. He called 911 and was brought to the local emergency room to be treated for what his work colleagues presumed was a heart attack. Scenario number two. A 39-year-old female has been having a nagging pain in her upper back for the past week, and her husband noted that she appeared to have an inflamed and infected cyst in the same region as her pain. 
She knew about the cyst for years, but it never bothered her. However, it was now significantly larger, angry-looking, and painful. She called her primary care physician and was advised to place hot compresses on the area twice daily. However, a few days later, that same cyst had become intolerably painful and she was developing a low-grade fever. She again called her doctor at the office asking to be seen, but there were no available appointments that day. She was prescribed antibiotic pills and was given an appointment a few days later in the future. But by the following day, the pain was again much worse and she was becoming even sicker. The patient again called her doctor's office asking to be seen, but there was still nothing available. And following a conversation with the office nurse, the patient was advised to go directly to the emergency room to have her infected cyst incised and drained. Scenario number three. A 40-year-old male with diabetes and chronic back pain has been taking medicine to control his blood sugar for years and has seen several different doctors around town for the past several months for his back pain, and he doesn't really have a primary care physician. He has been taking narcotic pain pills multiple times per day and has been off work for the past six weeks due to the pain. There's a physician assistant who he can drop by and see at the local community health clinic, but it's inconvenient to go there as sometimes walk-ins have to wait for several hours before being seen. His employer notified him that he needed to show up for work that weekend, potentially risk losing his job. So the patient decided to go to the ER to get some sort of a note to get him out of work for a few more weeks, as well as a refill of his narcotic pain medications. He is also running low on his diabetes meds, so he figures that he'll ask for a refill on those meds as well. Clearly, each of those three examples is very different, and there are countless other examples of why patients go to or are brought to an ER for medical care. Skin lacerations, broken bones, seizures, migraine headaches, abdominal pain, motor vehicle crash, psychiatric crises, and the impending premature birth of a baby are all common reasons why people seek emergency health care. But looking briefly at the three examples I presented, I think that everyone would agree that the man whose father and brother had heart disease, who is experiencing all the classic symptoms of a heart attack, should be and needs to be in an emergency room. He's experiencing a true emergency and needs the immediate attention of skilled doctors and nurses and all of the emergency testing and equipment to diagnose and treat a potential life and death condition. This patient does not belong in a doctor's office, and he certainly should not be trying to self-diagnose his condition by way of an internet search. The emergency room is the only acceptable place for this particular patient right now. However, the second patient's situation is different. Her condition has been ongoing for several days. She has already made contact with her primary care physician several times, and in fact, has been prescribed a course of antibiotics by her doctor who had not even seen her. The patient tried to get into her PCP's office to be seen, but there were no appointments available for several days. Only after enduring her unrelenting pain for several days did she present to the ER, but it wasn't by choice. The patient could have easily had this relatively simple condition definitively managed in any doctor's office. In fact, that would have been her choice, but she was sent to the ER largely because her outpatient health system could not accommodate her. And then finally, I gave the example of the man with diabetes and chronic pain who needed a note for work and a refill of two different medications. There was a health clinic available which he could have gone to, but he didn't feel that that was convenient for him. He should have had this non-urgent, certainly non-emergency condition treated by a clinic doctor and preferably by the same provider who had treated his diabetes and pain previously. But instead, this patient abused the system like so many other patients and used the ER as a convenient care center. Clearly, this was an example of what should not happen, but this happens all the time, every day, at emergency rooms all across the nation. This patient and so many others like him clog the ER. 
where he gets unnecessarily exposed to others who are genuinely sick and dilutes the resources of the ER, taking doctors and nurses away from those who present with a true emergency. Some of you might be asking yourselves why emergency rooms don't just turn away patients like that last one with the chronic pain, someone who clearly doesn't need an ER, and tell him to go to his community clinic in the morning. Some of you might be thinking that the woman with the infected cyst is taking up an emergency room bed which may be needed for someone with a stroke, a severely bleeding wound, or someone choking to death. Well, your thoughts are entirely valid. And in fact, patients with non-life-threatening conditions do clog up emergency rooms on a regular basis. But there's very little that the ER can do about that. Whereas you might think that anyone with even the slightest amount of medical education could see that the man wanting a medication refill and a note for work had no emergency, and that the woman with the infected cyst could easily be sent away knowing that nobody dies from a simple skin infection. But in fact, the law prevents doctors and nurses from doing that. And both of those patients have to be seen by the ER. This all probably is an example of the pendulum swinging too far in the opposite direction following some bad outcomes many years ago. As in fact, as recently as when I was in medical school, there was no law mandating that all patients who sought emergency care at an ER needed to be seen. Back then, patients without health insurance or those who were unsavory customers were often turned away from various ERs and told to go somewhere else. But all too often, someone with no money, no insurance, or someone with the wrong looks or the wrong disposition was turned away while suffering from a genuine, life-threatening condition. When these patients died and their families sued, legislators passed laws preventing patients from being turned away from an ER for any reason if they presented with a perceived medical emergency or if an act of labor. The conundrum that ensued, however, was how one defined an emergency. How does anyone know that an emergency does or does not exist without doing some sort of a medical evaluation? And thus, in order to be within the confines of the law, doctors in every ER across the nation were thus required to assess anyone presenting to the ER for any reason. By the time the patients had been assessed by a doctor, a cursory doctor-patient relationship of sorts had been established. And that being said, it was best for that doctor to complete his or her evaluation of that patient and prescribe whatever treatment was required, whether or not it was determined within just a few minutes of time that there was never actually any true emergency. So patients can't be turned away. And it is the legal duty of the emergency room to care for all who enter the facility. Lawyers and legislators have established the medical legal standard, and they didn't write the laws to allow for any wiggle room. However, there aren't unlimited ER beds, and there aren't unlimited ER doctors, and there isn't a legislator hotline where ERs can call to request an emergency waiver. And so sometimes patients with non-emergent conditions are forced to wait for a very long time before a bed opens up. And sometimes an urgent or even emergent patient doesn't get timely attention because an emergency bed is already occupied by a non-urgent patient who may refuse to move. But that is all the unfortunate consequence of all of the regular customers who have learned how to abuse the system created by the errors and misdeeds of the past and poorly written laws. And that is exemplary of the bad and often the ugly of healthcare in America. Now, before I go on, I'm going to take my usual break here and temporarily diverge, as I always do in these podcasts, and talk about something really good about healthcare in America. And that's the specialty called interventional radiology. Now, most of you probably don't even know who I'm talking about, but know that I really admire these guys. In fact, if I could do it all over again, I just might have considered pursuing this as my specialty rather than surgery. Why, you may ask? Because it's kind of like surgery. 
Interventional radiology is obviously a subspecialty of regular radiology, and whereas all radiologists have stuck needles into joints and have injected contrast through those needles to help create better x-ray studies, interventional radiology is a massive step up in terms of the radiologist's skills, techniques, and in the amazing things that they're able to accomplish in general. So what am I talking about specifically? Well, interventional radiologists can drain intra-abdominal abscesses through catheters expertly placed via CT guidance all through tiny holes, thus preventing a surgeon from having to accomplish the same task via a 10-inch incision under general anesthesia. Interventional radiologists can mitigate the devastating consequences of a condition known as portal hypertension due to advanced cirrhosis of the liver, consequences which include life-threatening esophageal bleeding from massively engorged vessels, all created by diverting a shunt between the vessels in the liver and other large veins through a catheter threaded into the abdomen through a needle puncture in the neck. This procedure, which is known as TIPS, transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, is often a lifesaver for countless patients in liver failure who previously had no other option but to undergo a major operation known as porticaval shunting, again, all through a massive abdominal incision, which often carried with it an 80% chance of death in portal hypertension. Interventional radiologists also perform what are now considered fairly routine procedures, such as placement of dialysis catheters, vena cava filters, to prevent DVT blood clots from migrating to the lung, often fatal, and placing drainage tubes into the chest, all of which was once considered the domain of surgeons who accomplished the same tasks in a much more invasive, complicated, and painful manner. Interventional radiologists also biopsy masses and tumors, often located deep within the abdomen or chest, expertly localizing them via their general radiologist skills, but then obtaining a sample of these masses or tumors all through tiny poke holes, rather than by way of major exploratory surgery. In many hospitals, the interventional radiologists are some of the most valuable specialists, as patients, their doctors, and certainly their surgeons appreciate their skills immensely. Interventional radiologists often compete with invasive cardiologists and minimally invasive vascular surgeons, all of whom now treat diseases of the arterial system of the arms, legs, chest, and internal abdomen, restoring blood flow to diseased organs which may otherwise die. They do this without some sort of otherwise major operation, once performed only through huge morbid incisions. Interventional radiologists insert feeding tubes, which the gastroenterologists are not comfortable placing by way of a scope. They stent aneurysms, which the vascular surgeons are not comfortable repairing. And they are often the ones who treat patients with complicated sigmoid diverticulitis, where a tiny portion of the colon spontaneously perforates, resulting in a potentially life-threatening abscess. They treat this all without having to endure a major emergency surgical procedure, which often requires the creation of a diverting colostomy and the wearing of a poop bag. My surgeon colleagues and I are indebted to these specialists, specialists who frankly didn't even exist when I first began my career, and the patients who they treat are even more indebted to them. I definitely feel that healthcare in America has improved substantially as a result of these doctors who continue to find new and creative ways to manage major problems in the most minimally invasive manner possible with extremely low morbidity to patients. So interventional radiology definitely deserves a check in the good column when discussing healthcare in America. Okay, enough kudos to my IR colleagues. Let's get back on topic and talk a bit more about all the changes over the years which affect the management of an emergency room. As I mentioned very early in this podcast, I've spent a significant portion of my career working in an emergency room. 
Now, I am not an emergency medicine specialist, but I am a trauma surgeon, and as such, I have spent more days and nights in an ER than I can possibly calculate. But even before I ever attended my first day of medical school, I had already worked for six years as an emergency room technician. Yes, at age 16, I was working in an ER in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, Illinois, attending to all kinds of patients presenting with some sort of emergency. I performed CPR on the heart attack patients who paramedics brought in while in full cardiac arrest. I cleaned and I dressed wounds of all sorts and sizes. I applied plaster molds, soft casts, as we used to call them, to broken ankles, legs, wrists, and elbows. And I wheeled those patients who needed hospital admission to the various floors and wards, helping transfer them from wheelchair or cart to their hospital bed. Whereas I didn't do anything monumental as a teenage ER technician, I did learn the system well. I came to know the nurses and the doctors on a professional level and on a personal level. I came to know the good, the bad, and the incredibly ugly side of so many of the patients who present to an emergency room. But I also saw what I thought was never anything other than kind and professional care rendered by doctors and nurses to even the most unsavory patients. The ERs always had plenty of staff, doctors, nurses, and one or two technicians, and together we divided and conquered, caring for patients at their bedside, providing emergency medical care to all who entered our doors. For the most part, the patients who sought emergency care had real emergencies. Doctors' offices still accommodated urgent patient visits, and thus patients presenting to the ER for sake of convenience or lack of routine healthcare access was uncommon. During those early years, I developed the baseline standard, and over my many years, I have been the witness to the many subsequent changes. I should note that I didn't just work in one ER, but during my college years, I worked two part-time jobs in two different ERs, and so that very early baseline standard I'm referring to is not simply based on one hospital. I spent my earliest years working in a respectable community hospital, which served a half dozen villages and a population of approximately a quarter million people. We were not a trauma center or a stroke center or a specialty center of any sort, but we saw plenty of patients whose illnesses and injuries would merit a specialty center by today's standards. If necessary, we transferred patients out to the closest trauma center, approximately 20 minutes by ground, after stabilizing them in our hospital. Our ER had 15 general beds, plus a psych room, an OBGYN room, and an ENT room where we put the nosebleeds. The ER was divided into thirds, and one physician and two nurses were assigned to each pod. Whereas at our very busiest, the number of patients assigned to a doctor was six at a time, but typically it was more like four patients per doctor. Some of those patients were critically ill, and nearly all of them had some sort of genuine emergency, but most of them did not have a truly life-threatening condition. As an ER technician, I floated to all the pods, helping out whichever doctor or nurse summoned me. The doctors who worked in the ER back then, for the most part, were not emergency medicine specialists, as almost are these days. When I use the term emergency medicine specialists, I'm referring to doctors who spent three to four years in an accredited emergency medicine residency program and subsequently became board certified in the specialty. Back when I was a teenaged ER tech, most of the doctors were family physicians, doctors of internal medicine, or residents in their last years of training to be anything from cardiologist to neurosurgeon. There were a few bona fide emergency medicine specialists who had completed what back then was one of the very few ER residency programs. But once again, most of the doctors were not specialists as such. Back then, there were no physician assistants or nurse practitioners working in the emergency room. In fact, I'm not even sure that either profession even existed back then. Back then, an older, more experienced nurse worked at the triage desk and doctors and nurses cared for patients. 
I remember the ER as being an absolutely amazing place to work back then because the ER doctors treated everything, almost exclusively without calling in another doctor, all without the assistance of any other physician or specialist. Whereas there was an entire panel of every specialist imaginable assigned to be called in if necessary, these specialists rarely needed to come in because the ER doctors handled it all. They made the diagnoses and they rendered whatever emergency care was needed. And oh, by the way, they made their diagnosis not by shotgunning everyone through the CT scanner, but by way of good old-fashioned history and physical exam. Yes, basic x-rays and lab tests were often used to help make a diagnosis, but because CT technology of the time didn't allow for an abdominal scan, a chest scan, or any scan of the skeletal system, CT scanning wasn't even an option. ER doctors use their doctor skills to make a diagnosis and to render treatment. The admitting doctors or the specialists who would eventually get involved would see the patients later on or the next day as needed, following the thorough management of the emergency or the crisis, which had been expertly handled by the emergency room doctor. But these days, whereas all of the ER physicians, with rare exception, are board-certified emergency medicine specialists, there are a lot of physician assistants and a lot of nurse practitioners who play the role of emergency room doctor, and that leaves a lot to be desired. Some of these mid-level providers are absolutely outstanding, and they most certainly want to do a good job, but too many of them are just too novice or simply don't have enough depth of knowledge or training to substitute for an emergency room physician. Recall that all physicians require a four-year bachelor's degree just to get into medical school. Then, medical school is another four-year endeavor. And depending on whether one goes through a three- or four-year emergency medicine residency, by the time it's all added up, that doctor has been in training for nearly a dozen years following high school graduation. But that's not nearly the case for the physician assistant or the nurse practitioners, both of whom can accrue all of their training required to work in an ER in half that time. Whereas the doctors these days specialize in emergency medicine for years prior to becoming independent, the overwhelming and vast majority of the PAs and NPs do not. Thus, there is a big difference between an emergency medicine physician and all of the others who substitute as ER doctors. And whereas the physician to patient staffing ratios back in my day as an ER technician was approximately four to one, that too has changed. I know of one ER that has 30 beds, is one of the busiest ERs in the state, and staffs a place with just two ER doctors and two PAs or nurse practitioners. What is the obvious and entirely predictable consequence of not staffing a busy ER with enough doctors and substituting with too many mid-level providers who are not specifically or specialty trained? Lower quality. If a board-certified emergency medicine trained ED physician is actively participating in the urgent or emergency care of a handful of patients with a mid-level provider or two assisting that physician, and if continuous collaboration and ongoing communication between the crew is taking place, then some emergency room teams are able to effectively manage more patients using fewer and less specialized resources. However, when mid-level providers are given too much autonomy out of necessity, when a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner is essentially the only provider managing an emergency room patient without any real participation from the specialty trained emergency medicine physician, then it is easy to understand how lapses in quality occur. And this is not at all uncommon. The entire reason that the specialty of emergency medicine was created and the entire reason why emergency medicine residency programs all began some 40 years ago was to create a one-stop shop, if you will, where one physician specialist was trained and able to provide quality care to the vast majority of all patients who presented to an emergency room with a perceived or real emergency. 
Emergency medicine physicians receive training in cardiology, pediatrics, internal medicine, obstetrics, and spend time on a number of different surgical specialty services throughout their training so as to be able to recognize and manage most patients effectively and to a high standard without having to pull physicians away from home, from seeing patients in their clinics, or away from the operating room on a frequent basis. And in fact, ER physicians met that expectation for several decades. However, with more and more patients frequenting the emergency room for non-emergencies, and with the ever-increasing cuts in health insurance payments to emergency rooms, hospitals were forced to adapt and did so by decreasing the number of doctors per shift and adding mid-level providers to the mix. As a result, those less trained and less experienced physician substitutes started to rely heavily on CT scans to render diagnoses and increasingly started to once again rely on specialists to give guidance, essentially going back in time. So those of you listening may be surprised when I say that when one visits an ER, once a significant emergency has been ruled out, patients are often released and told to follow up with a primary care physician or are referred to a specialist on an outpatient basis without having definitively diagnosed a condition and without having completely resolved the medical issue. Yes, a diagnosis is made, but it isn't necessarily the correct diagnosis or the exact diagnosis. But that doesn't really matter because the role of the emergency room is to rule out an emergency, to treat the emergency. And if a non-emergency condition is diagnosed, to prescribe a treatment plan that will mitigate the patient's issue for a few days until a primary care physician can follow up. So for those who go to the ER for non-emergency care, they shouldn't expect that everything has been completely diagnosed, managed, and definitively addressed. In fact, there may be a number of incidental findings discovered on a CT scan ordered to rule out a true emergency, but the incidental findings are something that need to be further worked up and dealt with as an outpatient. So follow-up in a doctor's office is important but many who go to an emergency room never follow up with anybody, and thus things fall through the cracks. And whereas that is an example of bad in healthcare, I do not blame the ER for this. They are there to manage emergencies and nothing more. However, know that with that emergency room visit comes a substantial emergency room fee, costing much more than would have been the case if the patient had been evaluated in a doctor's office or clinic. And then the substantial fees associated with following up with the subsequent doctor are all in addition to the ER charges. Undoubtedly, many patients are frustrated with the loss of time and with the exorbitant costs of it all, wondering if they received the value they had hoped for. But once again, emergency rooms are for emergencies and are not intended to be convenience care centers. At the beginning of this podcast, I described the three patient scenarios. The first one was likely having a heart attack and being cared for by an emergency medicine physician in an emergency room on an emergent basis was entirely appropriate and likely life-saving. But what about the lady with the evolving infected cyst on her back? For certain, that patient should have been cared for by her primary care physician in the office or in the clinic. It would have been less costly and any skin abscess should be able to be treated by any competent provider but her primary care physician had no room for this patient. There was apparently nothing built into the system at that primary care clinic to accommodate same-day visits or next-day visits, and thus a relatively routine non-emergent problem was punted to the emergency room where much more costly resources were utilized. And going back to the third patient example who unequivocally used the ER as his convenient care center merely to get a few prescription filled and a note for work, that patient is a blatant abuser of the system. He too clogged the ER unnecessarily, taking valuable resources away from potential bona fide emergencies, thus diluting the overall care provided to the entire group of patients in that emergency room. 
Some may wish to classify that as bad, but having sympathy for my ER colleagues, I call that downright ugly. If any of you listening work at an ER or know someone who works in an ER, you know that those who fall into the same category as the patient in scenario three have little skin in the game. What do I mean by that? Those are the ones who are the greatest abusers of the system, those who go to the ER for the simplest of complaints, those who use the ER as a primary care center, and those who don't follow up with clinics or referral centers after leaving the ER, and they are the ones who usually pay little or often nothing for their health care. Anything that can be obtained for free, by default, has little to no value, and that includes health care. If it's easiest to go to the ER, and if it's free, that is, paid for by some other entity, such as the state or federal government, then it's going to be abused. In other words, I'm sure that patients who fall into this category don't mean to abuse the system. They most certainly share a portion of the blame as to why ERs are often overcrowded and inappropriately utilized. In other words, we can shake our heads at that last patient. We really cannot blame the lady with the painful cyst for doing what she did. She went to the ER because her doctor told her to. I happened to be in the ER last night attending to a patient when I overheard a conversation between a different patient and the nurse checking her in. The patient was in her mid-60s and was being managed by her primary care doctor long-term for a variety of common conditions. She had seen a nephrologist to titrate some of her kidney medications, and following that visit, the patient called her primary care physician to inform her that her legs had been increasingly swollen for the past several months and was advised by the specialist to have her primary care doctor look into it. The patient never spoke to her primary care physician, but communicated via her nurse over the course of several phone calls throughout the day. Finally, at about 5 p.m., the, the primary care physician told the nurse to call the patient and order her to go to the ER to be seen for her chronic leg swelling. The patient was frustrated, but dutifully followed her doctor's orders. The patient apologized to the ER nurse for being there, saying that she knew that she really didn't need to be there, that her condition had been ongoing for months, and that there really was no emergency. But of course, that nurse was obligated to find the patient a bed and to have one of the ER doctors or mid-level providers evaluate her, further contributing to the clogging of the ER and the increased cost of healthcare. And there are additional factors which make providing and receiving emergency healthcare even more complicated. Patients and their families expect the ER to evaluate their medical complaint with great efficiency and to do so thoroughly and well. This puts emergency rooms at a great disadvantage because most ERs are crowded and busy to begin with. It's often noisy and not necessarily the most comfortable place to sit and wait for several hours waiting to be seen. Patients and their families often get irritated and wonder why their emergency isn't being treated as such. Of course, there are likely many true emergencies being managed and those with the lesser conditions are the ones who do the lion's share of the waiting. So expectations go unmanaged from the very beginning and then there are all of the unnecessary tests. I say unnecessary because so many patients who visit the ER end up getting a number of lab tests performed and perhaps an EKG or a CT scan or two. So very often they are negative or perhaps equally often an incidental finding is discovered, which is an abnormality noted while looking for something else. An incidental finding that will not necessarily be definitively diagnosed or managed, but will require additional follow-up with other physicians days, weeks, or months down the line. Some wonder if all of the expensive tests ordered STAT in the ER are really all that necessary. And oh, by the way, all of those STAT labs and STAT x-ray readings by the radiologist will cost a lot more than anything done routinely. But ER physicians feel that they need to be done because we all live in an egregiously litigious society. What do I mean by that? Well, simply put, there are too many lawyers out there who earn a handsome living by suing doctors and healthcare institutions for what they call medical errors. 
Now, this is an entirely different topic and probably merits its own podcast in the future. But for now, let me say that many doctors, if not most, in some manner practice defensive medicine. That is, they order tests and refer patients to specialists or the ER for no other reason than to avoid the potential for a lawsuit. Because most patients who go to an ER do not know the doctor attending to them, and because most ER physicians do not know the patients they are treating, there is no real relationship other than a very temporary one. For all that the ER doctors know, any one of the patients on any given day could be an opportunist looking to sue. Of course, no doctor with an ounce of human compassion would ever want to miss an important diagnosis and would never want a patient to die or have a bad outcome, but patients don't know that, families don't know that, and most lawyers could care less about that. So for the foreseeable future, no patients should be surprised to have more tests performed on them than they may feel is necessary when seeking care in an emergency room. At this point, I've illustrated how and when the concept of emergency medicine all began as a specialty, and I've taken you all through the changes, which have unfortunately created a number of very real challenges, which plague doctors, nurses, and patients alike. But what about the consumer? What about the person who has an emergency medical condition and needs care? What, if anything, can the everyday consumer of healthcare do to ensure that he or she gets the best emergency medical care possible? Well, for starters, we all need to have realistic expectations. Whereas most people who feel the need to go to the ER likely feel that they have an emergency, which needs emergency attention, it's important to recognize that what a non-medical person perceives to be emergency may not be an actual emergency in the eyes of those who spend their lives working in an ER. Simple illnesses, such as the common cold, flu symptoms, an aching body part, or a small wound does not need to be cared for in an ER. Nearly any medical clinic can manage any of these conditions. Showing up to an ER with any of the conditions I just mentioned will certainly get you in line to be seen, but you will likely be bumped by numerous others whose conditions are much more serious. Second, it makes no sense to go to an emergency room to be seen for a chronic condition that has not changed for weeks or months. Anything that has been stable for that long is not an emergency, and a scheduled visit to a primary care doctor is much more appropriate. Third, Recognize that clogging an emergency room with non-emergencies merely for the sake of patient convenience consumes valuable healthcare resources and delays care for others who have true emergencies. Fourth, because emergency healthcare is such an expensive endeavor and because so many insurance companies have cut financial reimbursement to emergency rooms, emergency medicine physicians are being supplemented or in many cases substituted with less experienced, less trained physician assistants and nurse practitioners. If you or a loved one is a patient, you should take note as to whether you are being treated by a physician or by a substitute. And finally, realize that because emergency medicine has become the hunting ground for personal injury lawyers hoping to sue somebody for something, the resultant practice of defensive medicine results in the ordering of countless, potentially unnecessarily and costly CT scans and other like medical tests. Be your own advocate. If you do not feel that you need or necessarily want a particular test, you should feel free to politely ask whether or not the tests you are being subjected to are necessary. You may still need every test ordered, but a reasonable ER doctor may limit a portion of the workup. And finally, remember that people who work in the emergency room are human beings. They constantly deal with screaming, crying, and swearing patients, often intoxicated on drugs and alcohol. And by the end of their shift, their patients may be worn rather thin. For the most part, Patients with genuine medical emergencies usually receive very good care regardless. Well, that concludes my podcast talk on emergency medicine and the emergency room. I hope that you found it interesting or at least enlightening, and I hope that you may look for my next podcast topic covering whatever I choose 
on Healthcare in America, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I'm Dr. James Cole, and I thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.